Tonight I'd like to talk some about the origin, or I could say the lineage, of the tradition of this kind of meditation and practice we do here. I'll talk about a few of my teachers and their teachers, Vipassana teachers, back in time. Shortly before his death, the Buddha was asked who would be his successor. And he didn't appoint anyone, but said that the Dharma should be a light for us, that the teachings, the truth, and especially the practice, our own practice, should be a refuge. That's what we should entrust ourselves to. And it did work well in that way for two and a half, two and a half thousand years up to today. The living tradition, many living traditions actually have come through time down to us now here. Has manifested at different times in multiple forms in distinctly different cultures. At the beginning of the century in countries such as Burma and other countries of Theravada Buddhism, Southeast Asia, Sri Lanka, meditation practice wasn't exactly widespread. People were actually convinced that in order to get insight, to get liberated, one first had to develop very deep levels of jhanic absorption meditation. Meditative states which need to be done in quite special ideal circumstances require sometimes quite special capabilities with someone. So meditation was almost exclusively reserved for ordained people, mostly monks. They were the only ones who had the time and the opportunity to meditate in this way. And lay people, often even now, sometimes also nuns, were there to support the place, to feed the monks, make merits you know, create positive karma for another life later on when maybe one then would oneself be in a more fortunate situation and be able to practice in that way. So it was really not the common thing to practice meditation, especially to practice insight meditation at all. Because also very few of the monks actually did meditate so not much was left. For example, in Sri Lanka in the 30s, it seems to have been so bad that Lama Govinda, who had spent quite a few years there in the 30s, never heard or never seems to have heard about Vipassana or insight meditation. In his otherwise very good book, which he wrote there, uh, psychological attitude of early Buddhist philosophy, it's called. He presents the pastoral liberation as one of concentration and absorption, rather than one of insight, which is quite a bit misleading. And the only explanation is that uh, it wasn't very clear in those days in Sri Lanka, because he had done a lot of studies and research in those years. Now in Burma there was also a prophecy people believed in. The Burmese monk and scholar Dr. Rewata Dhamma Sayadaw, who lives in Birmingham, and teaches retreats and seminars all over Europe, wrote, In Burma there was a belief that the 2500th birthday of Buddhism, which was in 1956, which would be then in 1956, was going to be the threshold to the Vimutti Yuga, a new era of liberation, 
an era in which there would again be arhans, which means fully enlightened people. And therefore, many Burmese began decades before that to emphasize again the practice of Vipassana. By the year 2500, that's 1956, Vipassana meditation had become again the principal preoccupation of the people there. That's Rivata Dhamma who writes that. In 1846, a man was born in Burma who became a monk very early in his life. He became a novice in his childhood and a bhikkhu, a fully ordained monk at the age of 20. He was the venerable Lady Sayado. He was a great scholar. He wrote many books and he founded meditation centers. One of his students was the, the farmer Tetji, was later known as Sayatet. Sayatet, after having done this kind of meditation, was so deeply inspired by the effects of the meditation that he decided to ask his employees, his workers on the land, to meditate as well. So that is such a good idea. All my employees should meditate. So he offered them to do 10-day retreats. But some, quite some of them were quite hesitant, so he decided to continue paying their salary. He said, you'll be paid the same salary, but instead of working on the land, you sit. And you do this thing for 10 days. My teacher who told me about him also said he ran into a lot of resistance with the families and the wives of many of the workers there because in their mind when you meditate you'll renounce the world and you'll be a monk and you'll drop the family or you won't even start one. So there was a lot of resistance and everybody thought that was actually strange for white people to do that. But then, you know, knowing that they would get 10 days more pay, they decided to do it. And um, they also were very amazed by it. And being having a strong Buddhist background, in a way, they also understood very quickly what it was all about. And many of them became quite uh, great practitioners. It was probably one of the first lay people to teach in Burma, and he was teaching mostly lay people again. So it was quite a difference from what had been happening throughout history. Now, Saya Tetji's most well-known disciple was Ubakin. Sayaji Ubakin began to talk in 1941 and also mostly taught lay people. He wasn't a monk, also, but a civil servant who was married and had children. At some point in his career, he had become very successful fighting corruption in the administration, so that at some point he was made the head of four departments. It seems that corruption, you see, in spite of Buddhism, obviously was quite widespread, and uh, he was the person who could make a difference there. He succeeded in diminishing corruption by getting most of his employees to do a meditation retreat, as you might have guessed. <laughs> then, you know, after one, maybe two, maybe three retreats, those civil servants became very honest, because they started to understand what effects dishonesty had on themselves and they understood about karma, they started to become more responsible because they realized that, you know, they were serving somebody, a country, a people. They became more efficient, which really means something in those hot countries. Being very successful in that way, Ubakin was allowed to use a few rooms of the administration building he was in. Apparently he had the attic or the top floor where people could do 10-day retreats. So he was doing all his work and 
you know, being an administrator and also teaching his employees up in the attic 10-day retreats. Again, quite unusual in a place where this kind of activity was only undertaken by monks in monasteries. Again, I think those employees too continue to receive their paychecks. So it was easier to convince them to do that. And I actually think it might be a good idea for our administration sometimes. Imagine. Said that uh, Sayyid Yubakin was a, a man who was filled with tremendous energy. People would describe him as a spiritual dyna- dynamo. Dynamo? Dynamo, right? In addition to all his work in the administration and caring for his family, he also founded a meditation center on the outskirts of Rangoon, was known as the International, or is known as the International Meditation Center, IMC. And after some time, besides countless Burmese people, also a few Western visitors began to train and to practice there for short periods. Robert Hover, John Coleman, and others were Uberkin's students. Ruth Dennison was a student of his, since 20 years, she's teaching Vipassana retreats in the U.S., also in Germany. One of the co-founders, I believe, of the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. She has her own center in California. A very well-known Burmese laywoman student of Hubakin is Sayama. She lives in England, teaches mostly here and on the continent, together with her husband, Uchitin. So there was this spread of this technique also among lay people in to the West. Nubakin's most well-known disciple in India and in the West, at least, is uh, Sri Satya Narayan Goenka, known as Goenkaji, the Burmese businessman of Indian origin. Before I speak about him more, I'd like to say a few words about the Vipassana meditation. Lady Sayadaw, really, and some others had realized that insight meditations in terms of the so-called four foundations of mindfulness, or Satipatthana, in the Buddha's times had not only been practiced by specialists, ordained people, Buddha had delivered his discourse on Satipatthana, the Satipatthana Sutta, to the people of Kuru at the market town in northern India. It's this discourse or set of discourses that's most important, the most important basis for the Vipassana meditation. And I'd like to give a brief summary of it quite well-known, probably, to many of you. At one time, the Blessed One was living among the Kurus at Kamasadamma, a market town of the Kuru people. There he spoke as follows. And here comes an actual declaration of purpose, one could say, for this practice. That This is a direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destroying of pain and grief, for reaching the right path for the realization of nibbana, of liberation, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Ardently, clearly comprehending and mindful, having left behind desires and worries about the world, one abides in the body, one abides with the experiential feeling tones, Vedana, one abides in the mind and the mental and emotional qualities of mind, one abides in the objects and experiences of mind. I really hope by now this sounds familiar to all of you. 
Mindfulness of the body sensations, including the breath. Mindfulness of the pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral tone of every experience. Mindfulness of the different factors, qualities, and emotional emotions of heart and mind. Kindness, hatred, confusion, clarity, distractedness, concentration, insight. And mindfulness of all the other experiences, of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and also of various specific aspects of the mind, such as the five hindrances, the seven factors of awakening, four noble truths, many other aspects. All in all, what we practice here, from early morning to late night, and we do that as much as we can ardently, with clear comprehension, leaving behind our wishes and worries concerning the world, at least that's the idea, as long as we're here, and as much as we're able. The possibility that one could begin to do Vipassana meditation even without having a very deep concentration and calm or samatha to start with was really the rediscovery of this century of those people in Burma. That's really exactly why or what made meditation available again to lay people. We can just start with it and do it. And with this new approach, Goenkaji was predestined to become the first great conveyor. Thank you. He was really the first great conveyor of this tradition of Dharma to the West for Westerners. He left Burma in 1969 after 14 years of practice under Ubakin in order to teach Dhamma, as it's called in Pali, and Vipassana meditation in India, returning it to the land of its origin. He said that really that had been his teacher, Upakin's wish to do that, but he'd never been able to do that in his life. So Goenka felt very much, since he was also of Indian origin, that he really wanted to do that. It was sort of his wish and also the wish of his teacher. And for those who are not familiar with this part of history, since the end of the 10th century, there is no more Buddhism in India. It got completely wiped out by the Muslim invaders. So the last thousand years there hasn't been Buddhism up to sometimes in this century. Just because we think sometimes, you know, India is where Buddhism comes from. It did for one and a half thousand years, but then it was finished there. So there was this sense, you know, we should bring this wonderful approach to life, this wonderful practice back to where it originated and to the Indian people. 1969 also was about the time when the great pilgrimage to the east had begun and reached the first peak by the hippies and freaks who traveled and hitchhiked to India. Thus Goenka didn't just find Indians in his courses, but more and more, probably to his great surprise, young seekers from Europe, America, and from down under. Often they were, we were, bearded, long-haired, rather wild-looking individuals, just having dropped out of schools and universities, having broken with all conventions, practicing the Dharma, psychedelic sex and rock and roll, quite a motley crew for a rather straight businessman from Rangoon, you know, who maybe also had this image of this land where the Buddha had treated. Interesting and very special situation among those people who had come to India, Christina, 
Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and many others, myself. In 69, Goenka held his first 10-day retreat in Dalhousie with 11 participants. And not much more than a year later in Bokaya, we were already 150. The method was, and I believe still is, the first three-day days, one does what is called anapana, which is being with the in-breath, the out-breath, the in-breath. In this case, at this place, the body. And then one would shift to the method of what was called sweeping, which meant very carefully, precisely moving the mindfulness up and down to the body, or at times in and out from the heart center to the periphery of the body and back in. Being very present, very closely in touch and mindful with each sensation, each moment's experience in the body, developing a steady and equanimous attention. I think after about five days, there were all these ten-day courses, they still are, it was considered to be the length the course needed to be to get a real sense of what this meditation is all about. And I think, you know, there is something to nine or ten days rather than two or three that, as you know, it gives us enough time to actually settle in and really deepen and quiet and see more clearly. So after about day five, three sittings, and there were sittings of a full hour, 55, 60 minutes, were introduced where one wasn't supposed to move. So we would really gear up, you know, and there's another vow hour, and it would be very intense. And then the first year or two, we didn't even have silence all the time, so we'd come out of the sitting and tell each other how incredible it had been. So there were vow hours. There was a lot of sitting and not wa- no walking, because walking was considered to be too gross in the sense of, you know, sensations being more gross. It was a whole different approach. And uh, it's a very interesting, very powerful method, just like many other methods. Very specific in its own way. Goenkaji was also into chanting. He had this very deep, very strong voice. And during the first two-hour-long period from 4.30 to 6.30, we were supposed to sit there. In the morning, he would spend some time chanting, and also at the beginning and endings of those vow hours, or whatever you call them, he would do chanting, metta sutta, other chants. Goenkaji, too, like Ubakin, was really a person that was full of energy. He would teach one of these 10-day retreats, then would travel across India by train, and within four days, the next 10-day course would start in another corner of that vast country. And again, sometimes in another few days, in another retreat, would start up in the mountains. He was really untiring, very inspiring practitioner and teacher. I believe, I'm not sure about this, I believe that it's also Ubakins and Goenka's tradition which produced the idea of building metta-meditation into Vipassana retreats. Traditionally, or more commonly, metta seems to be practiced as a part of the meditation on the four Brahma-viharas, the abodes of, of the gods, the Brahmas, which are the states which those gods are supposed to rest, dwell in, which is kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And it is done as a practice of calm abiding and absorption. Done over some weeks or months. And uh, there somebody discovered the possibility of doing some metta meditation in the Vipassana retreats. And in that way, working on the attitude, on the sort of tone in which we're present, in, in which you're mindful with what happens from moment to moment.
Goenka's metta meditation usually introduced that day eight of a retreat was very strong. So, also with his chanting, a lot of metta and inspiration that came through. Today, as many centers in India, Europe, and the U.S., his retreats are still called Goenka retreats or Goenka courses, even though I think most or almost all of them are led by so-called assistant teachers who play one of his talks on video every night. Uh, I haven't been on one, but it's somewhat different nowadays. And I heard that when he teaches himself, for example, in his main teacher, in, uh, main center in France, it's apparently three to 500 people who attend. Even then, he plays videos of his own talks. That's a whole new kind of approach. And uh, I don't know if we should consider sometimes. <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> in those years, early 70s, Goenka would come to Bokai every winter and teach a couple of retreats in, at what was called, or still is called, the Burmese Vihara. We'd sleep on straw mat, next to straw mat, or at a blanket and a mat on the concrete floor, much like these days in the basement of the Thai temple on our retreats with Christopher. Sometimes, those days, we also had to sleep outside because it was so crowded uh, and there was only one building at that time. So when the rain came, we sleep on the stairs, you know, in the staircase, kind of like sardines. Also, for those who don't know the scene, all kinds of Indian holidays, there's Saraswati Puja sometimes, there's Holi. Often, for those special times, the Indians rent record players, and they, the record players would go off and they buy big loudspeakers to share all the music, which usually is uh, Indian film music, to share it with everybody in the village and in the countryside, you know, far and wide, and it lasted, I would say. And this would happen next to the retreat center, it still does, just in case you're interested in courses in Lokaya. The place is right next to the main road, with buses and lorries and, you know, horning and shouting and horse carriages. And it really didn't occur to us so much that this could be unsuitable. In fact, I think it was very suitable. And the whole thing was very inspiring to us. And there wasn't this idea created that um, we need an absolutely special environment for meditation. And then if we get, go out of this, it is a problem. We were right in the environment, which doesn't mean that it is not very wonderful and very powerful in terms of support if we do have special environments as we do here. But also it was very clear that any environment can work for meditation. At the Burmese Vihara, another teacher was living, Zanagarika Munindraji. And the Garika is a kind of a title, it's not quite a monk or nun, but it means somebody who's homeless. A lot less rule, but still is a kind of ordained person. Manindra is from East Bengal, today's, today's Bangladesh, near Chittagong, where apparently Indian Buddhists had fled to from the Muslim invasion a thousand years ago. They're still there, it seems. Still this corner of, I don't know, a few hundred thousand Buddhists. Manindraji also was part of the Burmese Vipassana tradition. It was the tradition of Mahasi Sayadaw. Mahasi Sayadaw was born in 1904 in Burma. I think Mahasi was his village, so often they're called, you know, after where they come from. You know, like in Denbury Ma, it was Mahasi <laughs> Sayadaw. After he had become a very learned monk, for many years he taught texts 
sutras and commentaries. One day he decided to look and search for a clear and effective meditation practice. And in the town of Taton, he found the venerable Mingo and Chetuan Sayadaw, who guided him in the course of intensive Vipassana meditation. And after long retreats and more studies, he returned to his home village and began to teach mindfulness meditation in a very systematic manner to the people there. To give you a sense of the environment and atmosphere these masters at that time practiced in, just one example, um, Mahasi Sado had a, they called it a colleague, student, at Mingun Sayadaw's place. They practiced together. This man's name was Tangpulu Sayadaw. Tangpulu Sayadaw meditated in a cave or in several various caves for 33 years. And after that period only did he begin to teach the Dharma and meditation in monasteries. And at quite an old age, he also traveled to the West. I only knew him for two 10-day retreats in the West. For me, he was one of the most impressive masters of the Theravada tradition. Just by his presence of incredible utter stillness and, and restfulness, just emanating peace. It was really tangible. Now, Mahasi Sayadaw came to Rangoon in 1949, where he taught the first 25 people in Vipassana meditation, and thus formally opened what is known as the Mahasi Tatanayekta, another Vipassana retreat center there. And ever since, hundreds of people are practicing there at any one time throughout the used skillfully can also get in the way there and he just like Goenka came back to India around the end of the 60s back to Bokaya where he lived and taught for many years let me just a few words on the practice style and the Mahasi tradition on the method in terms of the actual meditation style. It's much like what we do here, but in addition, there's a so-called mental labeling that is used. It's a way of, we could say, framing the experience to be very clear on what the object is. One uses, we could maybe say, one uses the 10% of sort of low stray thinking that often happens while we're present in the background to sort of direct the more full attention to the object and be very clear on what it is. So there's a kind of soft noting in the background that is rising, falling, bending, stretching, reaching, touching, hot, hot, bending, which is supposed to help and keep the 90% of the attention in real immediate contact with the experience. Method that can be very helpful when it's used skillfully, can also get in the way when used unskillfully, which you can imagine one can also easily do like with most things. The day at the Mahasi Center begins, just for those who feel like it's quite tough what we do here, begins at 3.15 a.m. The time I was there, I was only there for a month, it was so hot that at 3.15 I would have to take a cold shower with the bucket and I hate cold shower, and I never ever take one in my life. And it was so hot, I needed one. And then the schedule is simple, one hour sitting, one hour walking, one hour sitting, one hour walking, one hour sitting, and it goes through the day except for two meal times. And uh, 
breakfast around 6.30 and the big meal, the last meal of the day at 10.30. So it was very helpful if one could sort of dish in big loads. And in one of those places they would serve the rice with plates rather than with spoons, you know. Shovel it. Like, I'm not very good at this, so I can't eat that much and then I can't keep the energy up very long. So for some people this is very useful because you're done with it and you really your time is just for meditation and for other people it's rather difficult you know because the energy can really get lost as the day goes by anyway this is how you do it and there's no exception to that it's hot oily meat fish and vegetable curries on the table and uh, if one has been at Gaia House before one gets all his fantasies about the food at Gaia House. Then sitting, walking, sitting, walking. The last walking is from 9 to 10 p.m. And, you know, having been up from 3.15, I remember I'm not very good with sleeping, little living in long retreats. I would have to do a fast walking and I'd fall asleep while walking, you know, <laughs> trying to walk so fast that I wouldn't fall asleep till finally we get 10. And then at 10 it says, sitting on one's own bed till 11. So I like that one. <laughs> you know, spread my mosquito net, get my little cover ready, meditate on my bed. And then 2.15, right? Wake up well. So... <laughs> meditate for as long as it lasted, which was never very long. There's a constant ongoing construction, you know, people are donating new buildings, new places, so we had the cement mix machine right outside the hall, like right here. Through all the work is nailing and hammering and smoking Burmese cigars and shouting at each other. And uh, full moon, new moon, quarter moon, truckloads of people would flood the center of, of devoted lay people who would come to practice for a day, which was wonderful. And they would also have uh, given, be given talks by the Sayadars in the hall, blasted out to loudspeakers so that everybody could partake in the talks in Burmese. So that was very interesting, you know, you're in this very quiet space and the cement mix machine and they're hammering and there's the loudspeakers and the trucks coming. And they have this interesting way, which I don't know by me, so I was only told, something like you call that call and response in some maybe Native American churches or something. The Sayadaw would say something, you know, and everybody would then answer. He would say, is it better to kill or not to kill an animal? And they'll say, not to kill, not to kill. (laughs) And they would say, right, right. And then it says, it's good to steal or not to steal? And they'll say, not to steal, not to steal, and you're not. And it kept this, you know, out there. It's very interesting. It's an interview every day, big group. You just had to speak up right in front of everybody. Strictly on what happened. Strictly in the meditation. Like they would ask you, describe please what happens in your in-breath. My in-breath, you know, let me just check for a minute. I had all these stories I was going to tell. In-breath. They say, you know, go back. This is no good. And you really look. So you go back and you go, oh. <laughs> and then they come back and you report, you know, I see this sensation, that sensation. And I say, you know, what they would always say, more effort. Mm-hmm. And you go, you make more effort. Then you come back and you tell this next thing. And you say, okay, more effort. Heroic effort was the motto. And heroic effort was what we were told to apply. And yet, hundreds of people were practicing and there was incredible devotion. Everybody was really, really enthused about the practice and putting all their life into this. It's a very inspiring place, even though very different from what we might think it should look like, you know, from our ideas of places like that. 
There are always a few Westerners there. Right now, a friend of mine is there in his third year. There's a few other people I know that practice there. Nandokaya, in the Burmese Vihar, there were 20, 30, 40 people who stayed there most of the winter or all winter practicing. Joseph Goldstein and Salzburg. Maybe Christina was there, I'm not quite sure, some time. Suridas was there for a few retreats at times, though usually he stayed with Kalarinpoche up in the mountains. And then in the summer it would be in the mountains, in Dharamsala, Dalhousie, Nepal. In Dharamsala that I met Christina first in 1970, she was one of these oldies, you know, had been doing this for centuries, I thought, because I was knew when I got there. We were practicing there with the Tibetans, getting teachings from Geshe Raptan and other lamas. And then in the winter it would get very cold up there. So it was good to go down to the plains and practice in Bokaya. Glenka would come there and then Munindra would teach longer courses, which means he would begin his courses. He would start the retreat, give introductory talks, and give a long talk, you know, explaining all the stages of insight, which one was supposed to reach, you know, which was very uh, awesome, and which was sometimes difficult, because immediately one would try to find out where one was. And he would explain everything and then he was also glad if there was some older student who could take over so he would give the teaching and say I will come again now just ask such and such if you have questions so somebody else would start to give talks in 1972 he asked this man his name was Sujata an American who unfortunately has died of AIDS since he was sort of giving the Munindra retreat for one month, very interesting period for me. He suggested for those who wish to that we sit and walk and do everything in pairs. So we would pair up and we would sit opposite from each other and then we walk, would walk next to each other and we would go through the meal line and then sit down and eat in front of, other, of each other and we would do that for 16 hours. And it was amazing how much, I mean, just that, we did the same thing. But just that kept one so much there because there was one's friends, or, you know, sometimes somebody we knew, sometimes we didn't know them, who's doing that same thing right in one's presence. And it's quite intense, but also extremely helpful and insightful time for me. Also difficult and demanding sometimes. The year after, Munindraji asked Joseph. Joseph Goldstein had practiced for about seven years, maybe, in Asia. At that time, he had gone with the Peace Corps to Thailand, where he had discovered meditation. Remember his talk on bare attention was really a revelation for me. Because with him and Sujata, I had heard for the first time the Dharma in Western language, which means it's always been translated into English, but in Western ways of speaking and thinking, Western concepts and ideas. And I was so helpful and I was you know, more inspired than ever. So I feel with the Dharma traveling to the West, some things get lost or got lost, but some things also much easier here because things can be rendered in a way that makes sense to Westerners, that makes sense to us, that is, speaks to us and supports us in the way we need and are helpful for us. One thing I find important to be clear, and I think we are already, but I just want to mention it again, there are many ways of doing Vipassana. In spite of some traditions, some teachers claiming that they do, they teach the only right or the best way, 
the one way which the Buddha taught. I think each of those ways is the best way. And it's what the Buddha taught. When you look at the instructions from the discourse, they're quite wide. It's clear what to do, but it leaves open, you know, do you look at the belly, do you look at here, do you look at your nose, do you include the whole breath, do you emphasize um, feeling experience, do you emphasize mind states, do you emphasize this or that aspect? There's also a wide range. Basically, it's discovering, exploring with attention what is the experience of the moment. Munindriji said that when he left the place in Burma after um, eight years, he is a very curious person in all respects, not just in the Dharma. He's curious about everything. So I said I wanted to know all the ways of teaching Vipassana. So he said he went to 14 centers where they teach Vipassana. He says basically found 14 ways of doing it, 14 approaches, different approaches, yet all doing mindfulness and awareness practice. There are yet different styles of practice in Thailand. Christopher's teacher, Achan Dhammadaro, apparently teaches Vipassana by being mindful of moving the arm. Apparently, everybody in the hall does this. I've never seen it. <laughs> must look hard. You must have seen it. <laughs> and uh, Christopher once said that uh, we were in Bukaya on this retreat. He said he was he was getting in some trouble when you know this Achan, who was his teacher, and, and uh, you know he came to visit uh, Bukaya at the time of Christopher teaching the retreat there. So, obviously, the Achan wanted to see the whole group of people doing his method. But he hadn't taught them that method. You know, it was awareness of breathing and body and everything we do here. So apparently, he had to sort of take some precaution to move him around and in the right time into the hall when there was discourse time and meditation time, because he didn't want to disappoint him, seeing that they were not doing this. <laughs> And yet, you know, this is certainly a very, uh, a very helpful and powerful method if one uses that approach and knows how to use it. Maybe you should request him one day to talk about that lineage. Yet the whole different approach is taken in the Thai tradition of Achan Chah, the last thing I'm going to mention. During the time of the end phase of the Vietnam War and after, a number of Westerners found their way into the forest monastery of Achan Cha in the northeast of Thailand. A monk and a well-known master with a very special, again, peculiar teaching style, very personal, full of humor, and very strict. Completely devoted to practice in quite a wide sense not just meditation, but living the simple and yet demanding lifestyle of a monk or a nun. And the practice was living a virtuous life, following all the rules, which are many. And within that framework, letting go, letting go, accepting, accepting, whatever the day would bring, whatever the moment would bring cold, heat, mosquitoes, going out for alms rounds, barefoot, having a long way to go, having a short way to go, cold rain or whatever, dust, getting wonderful food, getting very little food because there were some very poor villages. Just being with that, being with that. Sitting for hours in the Dharma Hall, concrete floors, whenever still are well-known for long discourses, you know, if you think this one is long. Experiencing bliss in meditation, still just letting go, being with what is. All about letting go into that place where we're already home. Very simple, very direct. Achan Shah certainly didn't think much of 
studies, just this one story. Apparently, this practitioner woman and somewhat of a scholar from the city came to his monastery and uh, she thought a lot of her understanding and knowledge of Dharma. So she asked him a number of questions on texts and sutras. And uh, finally, apparently, he said, Look, madam, you're like someone who runs after the chickens, but instead of collecting the eggs, you collect the chicken shits. His Western students, disciples, the Achan Sumedho and many Western Achans, and Ayas, sisters or nuns who also teach retreats in monasteries in England, in Switzerland, Italy, New Zealand. Also Jack Cornfield was a student of Achan Chah, teaches and lives in the U.S., in California and Massachusetts. And from India, Christina and Christopher came to England, eventually founded Gaia House. And here we are, the heirs of a long lineage of people who practiced and who cared for the Dharma, for the teaching of liberation from suffering, teaching of serenity and of compassion. And it's still alive, still very much alive with all of us, very much available to us and everybody who's interested. And I think we're very lucky, very fortunate to have this very special opportunity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.